And so today we're going to be looking at how God fills our void with his joy. And so we've been looking at some of these Advent themes and we've been looking at some of the voids in our lives, the fears, the worry, the disappointments, the losses, the grief, and all these things that plague us in life and come at us in life. And we ask the question, well, how does God alleviate or even fulfill some of those deep longings that occur out of our grief and trauma? And today we're going to be looking at how God fills our void with his joy. Now, I want you to brainstorm with me for a little bit. When we think about the Christmas story, and even if you just know parts of the Christmas story, you probably have an answer to this. There's a lot of stories in the Christmas story that talk about um, worry or fear or disappointment. And yet in all those stories, we see the outcome being joy. And so what are some stories that you can think of within the Christmas story of disappointment or worry or fear that actually result in joy? Let's think of it together. Yeah, Mary. And what was Mary's story? Yeah. And, and as soon as the angel came, she was fearful, right? I mean, everything that happened to her, everything, the, the fear of loss, the, the fear of reputation, the, the fear of responsibility plagued her, and yet she was filled with joy. We're going to talk a lot more about Mary today. What are some other stories that we see? Yeah, Joseph. And what was Joseph's story? <laughs> yeah, and there's a lot of fear and worry that goes with that, right? Yeah, and even feels of loss and void when feels of betrayal from this woman, right? And yet he was filled with joy later on in the story as well. What are some other ones we can think of? Yeah, the shepherds, right? And what was the shepherd's story? What was the first thing that they did? Yeah, they fell down in fear, right, as soon as the angels came, right? And yet the angels said, I bring you good news of great joy, right? Yeah, the, there's this question of where did Mary and Joseph and, and the baby end up, right? And all the stresses that came with traveling and where they're going to stay and all the stresses that come with having a baby, right? And yet when baby Jesus is born, they're filled with great joy, right? Yeah. What are some other ones that we can think of? Simeon and Anna, yeah. What's that story, Len? Yeah, as soon as Simeon finally realized, oh, the Messiah has come, Jesus has come, I can, I can go to heaven. My life can be over. I'm filled with the absolute joy I could ever experience, right? Pardon? Yeah, when the wise men went to Herod, right, and there was all this controversy that Herod caused, killing all the young two-year-old babies, right, because Jesus is probably around that age, when the wise men showed up, there's all this destruction and murder, and yet life comes out of it. And the Messiah lives, and the Messiah still reigns, right? Yeah. Yeah, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the story we talked about last week, right? 
whole their lives had been filled with this massive void of not being able to have a child and and wondering if God's promises and fulfillments were going to come true and yet they were righteous people so they trusted and they were filled with joy and we even see Elizabeth with Mary and what are they doing they're rejoicing and who's rejoicing with them even yeah, baby John the Baptist in the womb, right? The baby's kicking for joy. And so even that story is just exploding with joy. And, and so we, we read stories like this. And I think part of the, what the Christmas story reminds us is that even in the midst of, of circumstances where we see trauma or grief or uncertainty or disappointment, whatever those may be, God still has this beautiful ability to bring joy. And a lot of those times, that joy is even beyond or despite our circumstances. Now, I think of joy during a season like this and during Christmas time, and joy almost seems elusive, doesn't it? Because we go through this season... We, we live through this Christmas season and we, we try to fabricate all these things that are going to bring us a lot of joy and so we make tons of good food and who brings that joy to people? Yeah, to some extent, right? We, we plan all these presents that we're going to buy for people and we get all these presents and we do all these things with extended family and we try and produce and manufacture all this joy and yet after this season, it slowly fades away, doesn't it? All the good food is gone, and you regret how much you ate. Anyone with me there, right? <laughs> All the extended family leaves, and hopefully it was a good time with them, right? All the presents that you received, you, you're probably sort of becoming discontent with them after a while, or they become irrelevant to your life, and all the things that we sort of ramp up in the season just slowly fade away. And the joy that they temporarily brought does as well. And so how do we discover a lasting joy then? How do we discover a joy that's beyond just a season like this? How do we even discover a joy when we have these deep voids in our life? And how do we even build joy into our lives when circumstances are pressing joy away? And I believe that if, if we just think about joy as sort of an emotion, we're going to miss the entire biblical concept of joy. Because joy is much more than an emotion. Um, it's, it's actually an essence and condition of Jesus, of who himself is joyful. And when we realize that in knowing Jesus and experiencing Jesus and loving Jesus, then we ourselves will be filled with joy, we're going to begin to understand that, that joy is not simply passive. Joy isn't just something that comes to us because of circumstances. Joy itself is actually active, something that we pursue, something that we develop, something that we work towards. We actually choose joy, if that makes sense. We choose joy. And so the New Testament, it talks so much about our call to rejoice. And we're going to look at a story of Mary, of her rejoicing. And to rejoice, then, is a decision to joy in God. 
To rejoice is a decision to rejoice and to find joy in God. Therefore, it's something we choose. It's a decision we make. And Rick Howe says this. He has a few books on joy. And he writes this that I think is extremely helpful for us. He says this. He says, emotions are the tip of the iceberg. There is much more beneath the surface. And when we explore that territory, we discover that we are active participants and contributors to our emotional states. Even if it seems that we have little control over our feelings per se, we do have a say about their entourage of values, beliefs, and desires. We can affirm them or deny them. We can embrace them or reject them. We can cultivate them or put them in check. This is what it makes it possible for us to school our emotions, wisely or foolishly, in healthy or unhealthy ways. We all manage our emotions. This, in turn, plays a very important role in the formation of our character, and this makes our emotions morally significant And he goes as far as to say the pursuit of joy is a moral obligation. You guys ever thought of it in that way? That the pursuit of joy is a moral obligation. Has anyone ever thought of that before? It's it's quite profound when you think about it. And and I want us to, to realize then, well, how do we fulfill this moral obligation to joy? How do we actually fulfill that moral obligation to joy when life is crumbling apart around us and all our circumstances suck that joy away? And so I want to read a little bit of Mary's story and and look deeply at some of what she was experiencing and how she was able to rejoice out of this deep sense of struggle that she was going through. And so let me just read Mary's song. And so this is after she's visited Elizabeth. This is after um, John the Baptist was leaping for joy in the room, in the womb. And this is what Luke says in his account in Luke 1, verses 46. And we're going to go to 55 or 56. And Mary here is rejoicing in God. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. It's quite a beautiful song, isn't it? Does anyone know where she's sort of 
quoting that song from or paraphrasing that song, the song of, anyone know from the Old Testament? Hannah and Samuel, right? When Hannah was crying out for a child and God answered that prayer with Samuel, this is really what Mary is bringing out in the song. In other words, she's rejoicing what God is able to do despite what the circumstances are around her. Now, think about this with me. Here's a woman who's experiencing great joy in this moment, even this period of life. When all the circumstances around her say that joy should be nowhere to be found. See, let's process all the things in Mary's life that could cause worry or anxiety or disappointment or grief or trauma. What are some of the things that Mary's experiencing right now that could absolutely destroy her? Well, let's think of it. Would Joseph really want to marry her now? That's an internal struggle she's facing. After all, she said she was a virgin, but is he going to believe that now? Would he marry her but then leave later? Would Joseph divorce her, then leave and abandon her? Just another single mother? What about her reputation? What were some of the things that would be said about her? What were some of the gossip that would circulate? She told everyone, I love God, it's a miracle, God made me pregnant, and they all laughed and made fun of her. And even in Jesus' adult life, people would mock him and say that his mother was a whore. Not to mention the concern for pregnancy. I mean, how many of you women just being pregnant alone is stressful enough? It's enough to cause anxiety and worry. Even more in a small town without great medical care. Plus she was poor, it was dangerous. A lot of women died at childbirth. A lot of children died in infancy. In addition to that, she could worry about her health and her well-being. I mean, she was considered a harlot, and she could be taken out to the city center. They could strip her. They could put rags on her and beat her and mock her and leave her there as a, for an example of the other women in town. She was greatly threatened. What about her family? Would they reject her? Would they disown her? Would they abandon her? All these things are pressing in on Mary's life, let alone the pressure of birthing the very Son of God. So you see, Mary's circumstances, especially at a first-time mom, are absolutely against her, aren't they? Her world could literally be crumbling and falling apart. She is a season in her life where she has so much that she could worry about and be anxious about and find disappointment in. And all these circumstantial pressures are coming at her. And yet, what do we find her doing? My spirit does what? What is she doing? My spirit re rejoices, magnifies, praises worships. And this rejoicing then is I'm choosing to take joy in God despite everything that is going around me. And so Mary comes to the state of rejoicing because she's realizing, first of all, who God is and what He has done. 
And he's real, she's realizing that God is so good and what he is doing is so great that no matter what she is going through in this circumstance of life, that she can trust him. And that in turning to him, that he will actually bless her. And so this is really God's intent for us to be these happy, joyful worshipers. And what we see in Mary's life is that she is a joyful worshiper. She has much to be worried about but she finds herself rejoicing. Now, think about this in our own lives, but especially in Mary's. If Mary worshipped and lived for her reputation at this point, what would happen to her? Yeah, her life would be destroyed. Her reputation is completely lost. Any sense of... of Purity is gone. If Mary worshipped family, what would happen to her? What if Joseph rejected her or family rejected her? She would be destroyed. If Mary worshipped a perfect engagement, what would happen to her? <laughs> Again, disappointment. Destruction. If Mary worshipped her plan for her future... And everything she aspired to do and to be, what would happen to her? All those future dreams would be destroyed. If Mary worshipped a life of ease, what would happen to her? Well, she's given one of the most greatest responsibilities of all of humanity, to raise Jesus. If Mary's life and circumstances of joy are based on any of these things, her joy would immediately be stolen, wouldn't it be? Immediately gone. And that's so often how we live in our own life, is that when we live for anything other than Jesus, when we live for anything other than glorifying and worshiping and desiring to praise God with our lives and to live as sacrificial servants of Him, then we quickly realize that all our joy is so easily diminished and discarded and taken. And everything that we pursue that we think we're going to find joy in ultimately leaves disappointment. It still leaves a deep void. And yet Mary is able to come to the perspective of rejoicing, of magnifying the Lord. And, and what she's saying there when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's saying that in my soul, even though life is uncertain, even though my health is uncertain, even though my marriage is uncertain, even though my reputation is uncertain, even though my future is uncertain, even though my finances are uncertain, even though I have all these things that can just well up inside me to discourage me and to frustrate me and to cause me to grieve or to sorrow, she says, I just want God to be honored and glorified. And I want others to see even in my life that God is good and worthy to be praised. This is a song that is rich in rejoicing. And that's what it means for us. She's saying that I'm going to renew my trust in God even though I fully don't understand what's going on. I trust that God is in charge and this becomes the comfort for her. This becomes the source of joy for her. She looks at her life and her future and she says, what's going to happen with all these things? I don't know. But God's in charge. I trust Him. I entrust my life to Him.
Therefore, when we look at joy then, joy then becomes this attitude that we adopt. Joy becomes this worldview, this perspective that is not based on circumstances. It is based on love, God's loves and promises for us. It is based on what God has done and what God has accomplished. It's trusting and placing our lives in the care of Jesus Christ. And so I want to go back to my first question then. Well, how do we fulfill our moral obligation to joy? Well, for Mary, it was renouncing all these things in her life that she could have idolized. It was renouncing all these things in her life that she believed would ultimately give her joy and trusting in God. And so we find joy and we commit this obligation to joy by simply rearranging our lives around Jesus and trusting Him and putting our faith and certainty, not only what He has done in the past in our Christmas story, but what we will accomplish in the future. And so what does is, what is the in-between look like then? I, I want to turn to a passage with us in Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4 with me. Because I believe this is a passage that really answers the question, well, how do we pursue joy? How do we experience joy in the in-between? How do we experience joy when circumstances around us are completely falling apart? And Philippians 4 has an answer to that question. And this is what Paul says. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 4, on. He says, rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, God wouldn't give us a command unless He empowered us to do this. And yet, we think of joy and rejoicing in God so based on circumstances that we often have excuses not to be joyful people, don't we? Who has ever went through a difficult day or a difficult season and you just feel discouraged and maybe you're a little extra mean or a little extra critical or a little extra Scrooge-like? Anyone there? And we make excuses. And we say, well, this is going on in my life, so of course I'm not joyful. This is going on in my life, so of course I'm acting like this way. Where, where Paul says, wait a second, that, that's not your calling as the people of God. He says, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I say, in other words, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it again. What are you called to redo? Rejoice always. He says, Look at everything around you. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In other words, the Lord is with you. The, the future is with God. The present is with God. Your life is with God. Therefore, verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. See, isn't it anxiety? Isn't it worry that often steals our joy? Isn't it the pressure of the uncertainty or disappointment that takes our joy? And Paul says, you know what? Rejoicing people, joyful people, they don't live in anxiety. They don't live in worry. 
But in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, whatever you're going through, submit it to God, the sovereign king. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, in other words, the the wholeness of God created in your life, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he says, finally, brothers, finally, church, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And so Paul gives almost this beautiful little short instruction manual of of how do we find joy between the Christmas story, the coming, the incarnation of Jesus and his second return where all things will be made right, the fruition of the kingdom of God. How do we find joy in the in-between right now? And, And really he breaks it down into three categories. He says, I'm commanding you to have joy. Notice that joy is a command, right? Like I said before, there's a moral obligation there. There's something that is crucial for us to understand there. And he says, how do you have this joy? Always, not when things are just good in your life, not just when things are going well in the world, because are things going well in the world right now? No. And if our circumstances of joy were based on the world going well and everything going well right now, we would all be a mess, right? And yet there's something that sustains us. So he says, despite all these things, here's how you can experience joy. And he breaks it down into three major things. He First of all, he says, you need to have gratitude. In other words, don't worry about anything but with what? With thanksgiving. Gratitude, thanksgiving, giving thanks to God, which means that we now have a posture in our life. And along with the posture, we have practices in our life that actually cultivate thanksgiving, that actually cultivate gratitude, which means that we shouldn't just leave this up to chance. We should actually have habits in our life where we are continually and coming back to thanksgiving of God. See, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find in my prayer life that, and this is how we usually pray even as a family at night too, we, we usually just thank God for things, right? And a lot of those times, those things are circumstances that we're thanking God for, Right? Thank you, God, for this happening today. Thank you, God, that this relationship, this thank you, God, for this, whatever it may be. And, and we, we have this posture of thanksgiving that is based on circumstances. But, but Paul, I think, gives us an even deeper understanding there. Because this thanksgiving and supplication being made known to God 
is with the purpose of us experiencing God's peace, God's shalom. Which means that even when everything around me, I have nothing to be thankful for in the day. Maybe it was an absolutely horrific day that you had. Maybe you went through so many experiences of hardships and trials and you were overwhelmed. Maybe you just went through the day and you said the circumstances were horrible today. And yet, what do you still have to be thankful for? For who God is and what He's done in your life. There's still a joy and a sense of gratitude there. And He builds on this by by reminding us of something. He reminds us that God then is the source of of joy. Because when we, as he says, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, this is, this is the guarding that is taking place when we actually pursue Jesus, when we experience Jesus, when we're in relationship with Jesus, that is guarding us. Why? Because Jesus himself is the source of joy. Amen? We have to realize that. So often practically in our life, we we don't realize that, wait a second, Jesus is the source of joy. And and so often it's, it's not our first response to go to Him. Let me just read Psalm 16 for us for a second. I think that's that's a powerful psalm in my life when I just need to remind myself that wait a second, God is the source of joy. So let me just read Psalm 16 for us and let's just meditate over it for a minute. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, right? Paul says that God is going to guard our hearts and our minds. What does Psalm 16 say? That God is our refuge. Verse 2 of Psalm 16, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no what apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Has anyone prayed that prayer recently? I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Is that What's he delighting in? The family of God, the church, right? When's the last time you thank God for the church family and delighted in the church family, Right? The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. What's he saying? I see everyone else in the world running after something other than Jesus, and what does it produce in their life? Yeah, the, yeah Santa's naughty list. If you want to, I, I can't stand the concept of Santa, but that's another rant for another day. But it's, it's saying, if you pursue anything other than Jesus, you're going to have sorrow. Then it says, verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
Therefore, what's the therefore? Why? Because he is established the Lord before him. And he's in the presence of God. Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being does what? Rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is what? Fullness of joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And that's what I think we need to realize is that when we draw near to God, when we experience Him, when we live in His presence, that is the source of joy. Uh, There was this French priest and philosopher, his name was Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and he wrote that joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if, if you're experiencing joy... There's no other explanation of true joy other than that the presence of God is with you. And Karl Barth, who is a very famous theologian, massive influence on Bonhoeffer, he says this triune being, in other words, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the triune God, this triune being and life is radiant. And what it radiates is joy. In other words, when we're in the presence of God, when we fully experience God, when we're restored to God in relationship with Him through Jesus Christ, His Son, when we draw near to Him in prayer, what it produces is joy. A joy that, again, isn't based on circumstances. Now, here's another step of of wisdom that Paul gives us. In Philippians 4, he says in verse 8, he reminds us that if you truly want to rejoice in all circumstances, if you truly want to experience the joy of God's presence, if you truly want to be living always in the presence of God and experiencing that joy continually, then he says then you need to focus on something. You, You have to pay attention what you give your focus to. You have to discern what you give your time and energy and focus to. And he says this, he says, here's what you need to focus on. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise. Think about these things. Now ask this question in your life. What is actually worthy of your praise? What is actually worthy of your praise? I mean, when we talk about the word worship, we're we're talking about giving worth to something. In other words, our worship means that what we live for what we sacrifice for, what we put time and energy and effort for. And Paul is saying you need to ask deep questions in your life about what you actually worship in this life. 
What do you actually give worth to in this life? Because he says, if there's anything worthy of praise, and as a church we know this answer, what is the answer, church? What is the only thing worthy of our praise? God himself. And so Paul is saying, you need to give attention into everything to Jesus. Richard Foster says this, and he wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. Beautiful book. If you want to borrow it, let me know. And he says, the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. In other words, whose responsibility is ultimately lying? Yours. Put your hand up if you have the responsibility, right? Let's take a little ownership here, right? You have responsibility in your own life to have the decision to set the mind on the higher things of life. He says that's why celebration or worship even is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our heads. It is the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. In other words, we have the responsibility, we have that moral obligation before God and before others to pursue and seek after joy and rejoice always, just as Paul guides us to. And so again, what do you give attention to in your life? There's a joy in seeking Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself is full of joy. Jesus gives joy. He is the source of joy. And when we take refuge in him, when we allow him to guard our hearts and minds, then we realize that everything that was once void becomes full. Every deepest longing that we once had is satisfied in him. And when we come to this perspective that we can say as a psalmist, I have no good apart from you, we are recognizing something. We are recognizing that we're hopeless without Jesus. We're desperate without Jesus. We're failures without Jesus. We're lacking without Jesus. And we have no ability to atone for our sins without Jesus. We have no ability to create peace and shalom in our lives without Jesus. We have no ability to love fully without Jesus. And so it's coming to this perspective in life that if this is true, then I need to discern and train my mind to what I give attention to. I need to have a focus and a diligence of what I'm actually pursuing in life because so much of life will simply suck joy, but Jesus will fully give joy to us. Henry Nguyen, who's a a spiritual formation author, he says this, he says, joy does not simply happen to us. Yes, good things may happen. Yes, there's things to celebrate in our life. But joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. And how do we choose it? How do we find it? As Paul says, to pursue these things in Christ and focusing and discerning what we give our attention to. And then he says this, I want to remind us that he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what are we called to do with these things? What does he say? Verse 9. 
practice. Practice, practice, practice. Right? Anyone sports, you ever heard like practice makes perfect and all those things, right? Perfect practice makes perfect, right? Paul is saying this isn't going to come naturally to you. This isn't something you're just going to walk into. This is something that takes trial and effort and discipline, and especially in a world and a culture that we have right now that deals so much with mental illness and depression and despair, right? This is not something that all of us can just walk into naturally. Paul says we need to practice these things. Practice them. Do them. And so ask yourself then, what are practices in my life that are in place for me to be practicing thanksgiving, as Paul says? What, what are practices in my life that are in place to be drawing near to God, to the source of joy? What are practices in my life that allow me to discern and to focus on what I need to give attention to? Right? These are, these are things that don't come naturally. So what are you practicing? Now, there's many ways that we can answer that. If, if you're struggling with answering that question or you just have no idea, like, I just don't know what to do, Micah. I don't know what practice I need to put in place. I don't even know where to start. Well, come talk to me about that. We can talk about spiritual disciplines and we can talk about what spiritual formation looks like. We can talk about how Paul practiced these things and how we can do them in our culture and society too. Obviously, Len is a beautiful source for that too. He literally specializes in spiritual formation. And so there's so many resources in this church, but it's the question, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to practice these things, as Paul says? Are you willing to put them into practice? Because that's, as Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. So let's, let's pray to that extent. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you that you are a father of love. We thank you that you are a father of joy and that you have brought us into your presence of joy. Lord, the triune God and the perfect relationship that you guys have as Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, your very essence radiates joy. And Lord, the beautiful part of the gospel is that you have called us into that relationship as your people so that we can experience that fullness of joy with you. And so, Lord, we confess that even though that beautiful gift is right before us, we lose focus. We lose discernment. We spend so much time seeking after other things to give us joy while neglecting the source of joy, you. And so we pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to rejoice always. Lord, there are a thousand excuses before us of why we could not be joyful people. There are so many experiences of grief and trauma and pain and abuse in this room. And Lord, you acknowledge those and you grieve with us in them. And despite all those things, you offer a profound joy that is beyond circumstances. 
Lord, we read it throughout the Christmas story of so many people of history who have experienced what you're able to do. Lord, we pray that we as well, at this time, in this place, as we seek after you and pursue you, may you give us the fullness of joy that we so long and desire. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.